Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm here today with a good friend and colleague and uh, outstanding vitreoretinal surgeon, clinician scientist, Dr. James Major of, uh, the, uh, of Houston, Texas, where he is clinical associate professor at Houston Methodist Hospital and at uh, Retin Associates of Texas, a big Thanks, group. Yeah. And uh, he's done some interesting work looking at suprachoroidal injection. Uh, and we're going to really focus today on the basics of suprachoroidal therapy. Uh, this is something very new to most retina specialists. So what should we know about this procedure, this technique, this delivery approach? Thanks, Dr. Pulivito. It's great to be here. And it is an exciting approach because instead of being a new drug, it's a new space, really. So in that space, you can use old drugs, new drugs that we might develop, drugs that might be safer in that space. And so it's essentially the space between the cord and the retina, the suprachoroidal space, and it's a potential space, and it can be accessed in the clinic, uh, similar to what you do with an intravitreal injection that we're so used to doing, but it's a 0.9 millimeter, um, excuse me, a 900 micron or 0.9 millimeter in a flat-tipped injector that's especially um, adapted microinjector. once you get in, you sort of dimple the sclera, and once you get into that space, whatever medicine you're using in therapy then travels around the supercortical space and gains access to the retina and the macula and the posterior bowl. So um, tell us a little bit more about the, in the delivery system. What's the... Yeah, it's a specialized, it's a specialized micro injector that they've developed. And there's really two sizes to the needle. The normal size is the 900 micron needle. And that's basically the size of the sclera. You think about the sclera being about a millimeter thick. Well, this has just enough length to get through the sclera. And when you're injecting it, you actually have to dimple the eye in. And if you're in the sclera, you, you attempt to push the needle. You cannot, the drug obviously won't go through. And once you dimple the sclera and push in lightly, you, and we do it um, like you would a normal intravitreal injection, you know, with iodine, povidone iodine prep, and a lid speculum, it then zippers around the suprachoroidal space. There's actually a separate needle number two, which is a 1.1 millimeter needle. So you say, oh, this person has a thick sclera. I can't make it through. You can actually quickly change needles and use the 1.1, which is used fairly infrequently, but it's there. And once you hit the space, you inject it. So it, there, there is some technique involved in feel uh, in terms of doing the injection. It's not just sort of a stick it in. You have to dimple it just enough to get into that space and, and, and use it. But otherwise, you know, once you're used to it, it takes 30 seconds a minute. It's, it's quick. How do you know that you're in the, the suprachoroidal space? You can't inject if you're not. If you're not in the typical, the, 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 um, when you first start doing it, when you begin to inject, you think you're in the supercortical space and you cannot plunge the injector. You can't release the medicine. You dimple it ever so slightly. And then once it goes, there's no resistance. So it's all about feel and resistance um, on essentially the syringe mm -hmm. to know you're in space. Is there a chance of perforating the globe? No, it's too small. The needle is flat tipped. It's not even a needle. It's really a micro injector needle. So it doesn't have mm -hmm. a it's flat and it's, and it's too small. So you're barely penetrating the sclera. So if anything, you, you edge on the side of not injecting or not being able to inject where you're in the sclera, not able to push the medicine and it's too short. You dim uh, it 
and then it, it goes around. I, I've heard that in some applications, you use a thermal camera to watch the diffusion of the drug. You can, they've, they've radio labeled, fluorescine uh, radio labeled the dye. Once you inject it in, you know, instead of sitting like in a depot, like you might imagine, well, once I inject it, it's just gonna sit in a wad in that supercortical space. It actually zippers around posteriorly and gains access to the macula and the posterior pole um, structures in the back. Mm-hmm. And this so is the what, reason that happens is it's it's the same uh, same uh, biophysics that really drives uveoscleral outflow. So the intraocular pressure is greater uh, than the anterior supercortical space pressure, which is greater than the posterior supercortical space pressure. So thereby, when you inject it in the anterior com- supercortical space instead of just sitting there, it actually travels the pressure differential traveling from high pressure to low pressure. It goes from anteriorly and zippers around the posterior pole back toward the optic nerve. So the drug then sort of diffuses and you can see this once it's radio labeled um, and it's pretty easy using uh, fluorescein light. So what, what molecules can we inject? Pretty much anything, you know, the size of the molecule in typical, like the peach tree study and some of the uveitic studies, we use the old tried and true triamcinolone. But any molecule that's basically found in suspension, you can inject. So far, we've tried to inject the eye. So there's, uh, as some of the studies have talked about, wet macrogeneration, axitinib, uh, potential molecules, molecules even for cordial melanoma because they gain access to the posterior pole. So any, any molecule that you can basically put in a liquid uh, aqueous suspension, um, you can inject through, as long as it's not too viscous. So uh, where does the triamcinolone go, for instance? So the triamcinolone, what's interesting about the, what's great about the triamcinolone is, you know, we're used to giving triamcinolone either in the sub-tenons triamcinolone or um, in the intravitreal space. But this triamcinolone, when you give it, say, in the Peachtree trial, uh, which was the phase three trial, it, if you look at the actual numbers, it's found in very, once you give it supercordially, it's found in very high concentrations in the retina and the macula, but very, very low concentrations, if at all, in the anterior chamber, in the lens, and the ciliary body places that, that cause high IOP rises. So it has the wonderful benefit of giving you therapy where you need it in com- compartmentalization, but without the, the, the high IOP side effects. And that was borne out in the trial, to the Petrie trial. People that received supercortical um, injections of triencinolone did not have corresponding IOP rises like you'd expect they would with a typical steroid injection. Is there a de- depot effect? There is, and it, 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 there's a there's an initial depot effect, and then it, there's durability in the drug too. And they found that drugs, in, 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 as a generalization, drugs injected in the supercortical space last longer uh, than they would intravitreally. Uh, there seems to be the size of the molecule and the suspension that you use um, is cleared more, um, it, it's more difficult to clear by the cardiocapillaries depending on the molecule size, but you can really have long lasting durability uh, like three, four months with drugs that typically last one or two months in the intravitreal space. What about, uh, what about gene therapy? So this is, this is exciting because, you know, we've seen problems, this, this Gene therapy uh, in the eye clinically works, but we've seen some very, very deleterious side effects like intraocular pressure that just falls to the ground, uh, where the ciliary body becomes atrophy, there's iris body um, atrophy, um, 
and I attribute to the iris. So gene therapy potentially, and then to me, this is the most exciting area, but gene therapy potentially given the suprachordal space, really you could get the efficacy that you need without the unwanted uh, side effects of mounting an immune response as you do now when we injected the intravenous space and hence the, uh, you know, the, the big negative of especially um, hypotony and lowering IOP uh, with sort of destruction or, or detriment to the ciliary body. So this could potentially be a space where we could use this without the side effects and still have the, the wonderful efficacy that we saw. Is there a, where, what tissues are transfected in suprachoroidal delivery? So the when virus. You, you mean where, when you give it? Yes. When you give it, it, it is absorbed mostly into the choriocapillaris, then diffused through the choriocapillaris and into the retina through the RPE uh, and in, you know, in, into the macula itself. So if you, could, if you actually take um, and rabbit models, look at the concentration of the drug that you injected anteriorly, you find the same concentrations posteriorly in the retina, retinal pigment epithelium, and choriocapillaris that you did anteriorly too. So it's not, uh, you know, the sclera being largely avascular is not involved there, but those other tissues it is. And it, what's nice is it's found in the same concentration in both anterior and posterior portions of the retina and RPE and choriocapillaris. And some folks are using this to deliver a tyrannose kinase in inhibitor for the treatment of wet AMD. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's an exciting area. You know, anytime we get, uh, you know, we've long used just anti-VEGF monotherapy. And so you can combine uh, any drug, this is one of them, uh, like exitinib and any drug that it, it potentially inhibits anti-VEGF, the different isoforms of VEGF to use in the supercortical space and potentially add, uh, you know, added efficacy to both regular anti-VEGF or just a sole individual injection with, say, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor or, or other so drugs. How, how long does the tyrosine kinase inhibitor last into the, in the suprachoroidal space? Do we have an idea about that? Probably looking at three to four months uh, or, or potentially longer. So we don't know the exact answer to the question with this preclinical uh, pre data, but definitely a prolonged effect on the order of many months versus say one month with your you know, typical anti-VEGFs. Anti Why does it last so long? It, again, it's a clearance, we, I, I don't know for certain, but it's a clearance issue in terms of the, the, the molecule not being able to be cleared from the choriocapillaris. And you think about, well, that doesn't exactly make sense because the choriocapillaris is a, the most vascularized area of the body. It's densely, densely vascularized. Well, it's not taken up well and it diffuses well, um, again, depending on the size of the pores and the openings and the permeability of the choriocapillaris. So that part is beyond my scope a little bit, but I do know uh, that it has prolonged durability there. So oh, that's, ama that's amazing. So really it's a form of sustained drug delivery as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, in, in big picture, it, you inject it in the front of the eye and the anterior portion of the eye, it gets to the posterior pole because of differential pressure gradients. Number two, it diffuses throughout the posterior pole, getting to the retina and RPE and macula and areas where you want it uh, to get. And number three, uh, minimizes, it minimizes anterior chamber 
um, penetration and its unwanted side effects that you could potentially get. And so again, the sky's the limit for the supercortical space because pick a drug, whatever you know we have now, whatever comes in the future, it's a, exciting because it's not a new drug, but a new space to enter um, that has shown clinical efficacy in, in up to you know phase one and two and even phase three Peachtree uh, trials. Can you give us a step-by-step -step description of your technique uh, uh, in doing supercroidal injections? First of all, you're in the office, correct? Correct. It is an office-based procedure. You do not need the OR. So it's very similar to an intravitreal injections whereby the patient is prepped with provodone iodine. I use a sterile lid speculum and the typical sterile um, gloves and things that you might use for anti-VEGF injections. It's done, I, I typically do my anti-VEGF injections infratemporally, but this is done super temporally um, for ease. It is also no subconjunctival lidocaine is used because if you use subconjunctival lidocaine uh, and give a subconj lidocaine injection, it distorts the conjunctiva enough where it's hard to see. You need to have a flat conjunctival surface and sort of a pristine white um, would-be sclera underneath. So you take the, the 900 micron needle, which is the typical needle we start with, and the micro injector, hold it perpendicular um, to the space. So we use just use pledgets, um, pledgets, a Q-tip, uh, lida, um, lidocaine pledgets to numb the area and topical povidone iodine. You press slightly in on the eye, and then you you attempt to depress. You depress a little further, and you actually dimple the sclera. It's when you see the dimple, and you go in, then you really um, attempt to depress. If you cannot depress, you are not deep enough. You are in the sclera. If you go a little bit deeper and push dimple a little bit harder, sometimes a little more than you think you need to, then you should be able to easily depress. And what's interesting is, despite the topical lidocaine, the patients something about medicine going into your supercortical space, they feel it a little bit. So it doesn't feel like a pinch or an injection, but they, they usually will sort of comment, I felt that move around my eye. And so how we'd actually provide anesthesia for that, I don't know. It's not you know, painful, it's just sort of a unique experience, something zippering around your supercortical space, but they feel it a little bit, not painful. Uh, and then you just withdraw and, and use a, uh, I just um, move the conjunctiva over with a, uh, with a Q-tip and provide another uh, drop of povidone iodine. If you cannot penetrate the sclera with your 900 micron needle and you've tried and you dimple in and you can't get through, then you would change to the 1.1 millimeter needle or 1100 micron and try the same effect. The patient's sclera is probably thicker and you just didn't, weren't able to penetrate it with your dimpling effect on the first injection. Is the microinjector preloaded with the, uh, the substance that you're going to yes, inject? Yes, the microinjector is preloaded with injection. So, Whenever I've used it, it's always been part of a, a clinical trial. So it's preloaded with triamcinolone or exitinib or, or whatever drug you may be using. So it, it becomes preloaded. I would imagine in the future, if you were using this on a higher volume basis in the clinic, you would have to have a way to exchange, uh, you know, put in the drug that you needed to. Or it, it become, could be that the- Or it comes as a pre-filled syringe. Yeah, I think, I think the way that uh, the drugs are going to be distributed as it is linked to the delivery system. So the delivery system and the drug will come as a package, I think. That makes sense. You open the package, put it down, and you say, here's your injection of, yeah, you know, whatever it is, right? So as a pre-filled syringe. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. What's the volume of the uh, syringe? The volume, it's a, it's a, the 
maybe a five, you inject usually a 0.1 uh, um, of whatever you're injecting. The, the needle is probably 0.5. It's about five times that long. It's a very skinny, um, typical sort of anti-VEGF needle, thin. Well, this is exciting. Uh, it's, we're at the very, very beginning of this. And I'd like to thank you for providing this introduction uh, to your colleagues in the world of retina. So James, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pulifito. Exciting times in the super space and I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me.